Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Joan of Arc, who, of course, you've almost certainly heard of. A French peasant who, uh, as just a teenager, helped to turn the tide of the Hundred Years' War for the French against the English all those centuries ago. Uh, Joan of Arc's story has obviously lasted a very long time and is very well known to us today, six centuries later, uh, and with very good reason. There's a lot going on with it. She had a huge impact on the progress of the war. And perhaps most interesting, too, as well, she had she changed the entire nature of the war, the way it was perceived by people at the time, the way that it was fought. It was, you know, she didn't just sort of come and rejuvenate the French army. She also uh, had a big, uh, quite a profound impact on the way that the, the war was seen by the people that were fighting it. So we'll, we'll come to that, but I, I just want to address very quickly, obviously, you know, some of you will be thinking, you know, what with William Wallace the other week and, and now Joan of Arc this week. I bet, I bet a bunch of you expecting, you know, Saladin coming up soon, then Genghis Khan and, and Barbarossa. I mean, yeah, look, this pod, this podcast is starting to run the risk of, you know, becoming a rehash of Age of Empires 2. But, I mean, then again, you know, El Cid is a pretty interesting bloke, so maybe... Uh, look, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Anyway, Joan of Arc this week, um, we're going to have a chat about how, a, how an illiterate peasant girl single-handedly ended up changing the course of a huge decades-old conflict and, of, uh, of course, her, we'll, we'll get across her eventual tragic fate as well. And I'm sure some people are familiar with Joan of Arc, at least on some level, because we've all heard of her, um, you know, throughout... At, at some point, you all have heard of this one, but some of the ins and outs of her story are quite in- interesting to get across. So uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get to it. Let's get underway. Jump straight in. Off we go down the track. Strap yourselves in. So we're going all the way back here, all the way back to probably... 1412, probably. I say probably because that's the estimation we have for the year in which Joan was born. We don't have an exact date. Um, instead, we count backwards from the date of her death because we do know how old she was when she died. So in 1412, right, the Hundred Years' War, it had been going on for a very long time. You might be surprised to learn since 1337. It's almost living up to its name. It's almost, almost been 100 years. Um, although right now it's a period of, of relative peace, as a truce has been called between England and France. And also not act- there's not active fighting going on at this point. Uh, the war on a broader scale, it re- revolves around the rulership of the Kingdom of France. Uh, there's a succession of English kings who are pressing their claim on France, saying that you know it, it, it should be ruled by the English king. Uh, and France obviously attempted to keep the two monarchies separate, keep the, the, the French monarchy and the English monarchy separate rather than, you know, one bloke ruling both kingdoms. So the war had hit France very hard, very hard indeed. The English uh, used a lot of scorched earth tactics as they invaded the continent and uh, much of the north of what is modern day France is under English control when Joan is born. And uh, to make things worse for France, the French king at the time was Charles VI, who was mad as a hatter. Um, he kept forgetting who he was, forgetting he was king. He refused to bathe. He thought he was made of glass. Uh, a few sandwiches short of a, uh, of, a, of a picnic there, this poor bastard. So things, long and short of it is, the th- things were not going well for France, uh, and it only got worse <laughs> in 1415 when the war began once again in earnest in what's known as the Lancastrian period uh, when the English king, Henry V, invaded Normandy. So... Henry won an, uh, a series of very important victories, most notably, of course, being the Battle of Agincourt, uh, thanks to his longbows. You can go and hear more about that in episode 88. 
Um, and in 1420, uh, as a result of this sort of English resurgence back into the uh, you know into the sort of the back end of the uh, of the Hundred Years' War, the Treaty of Oh dear. Okay. Well, this is a, this obviously is a you know a French history podcast right now. We're doing French history on the in this app, and I I probably really should have done some research how to print. This one's an easy one too, but I tell you what, I'm not going to get a lot of them right. So do apologise once again. Unreserved apologies to the francophones all around the world, wherever you may be. I do apologise for butchering your glorious language, um, just ahead of time because I know I'm not going to get it. This one, the Treaty of Troyes. It's just Troy and then es at the end. I know you don't say the s though, so it's not Troyes. Troyer? I don't know. Anyway, the Treaty of this place, Troyer, uh, ugh. Um, this, uh, this treaty actually disinherited, right, the son of Charles VI, Charles the Mad. The Mad King actually uh, disinherited his own son and instead made Henry V, right, the English king, made him his heir. Uh, Henry married Charles's daughter. And in doing this, right, basically on the death of Charles VI, stood to inherit France properly, right? So as Joan is growing up, right, England, it controls much of the north of France, all the way down to, uh, you know, Orléans, uh, controls some of the southwest around Bordeaux, also allied with the Duchy of Burgundy, which controls, uh, which at this point controls the uh, the modern day Benelux countries, as well as the area around Dijon. So again, in short, the Kingdom of France, they're in a bad way. They're in a very bad way. And, uh, you know, it, it looks like it's going to get worse when Charles VI dies and Henry takes the French throne. But in 1422, both Charles VI and Henry V, they die within two months of each other. So this, I mean, technically this means that Henry VI, who is Henry V's son, uh, is is the king of both England and France, as agreed in the previous treaty from the, you know, I don't know, everyone remembers the name of the town, I don't need to go into the town name again there. However, given the fact that Henry uh, VI is just an infant, right, and given the fact that, you know, this succession wasn't particularly popular with much of, uh, much of France, many French nobles and much of France in general still, still remains loyal to Charles's son, who is also named Charles, rather unhelpfully. He would become known as Charles VII, uh, but at the moment he's known, he's known as the Dauphin. Um, uh, and they hope to see Charles the Dauphin fight the English and reclaim this disputed uh, French throne properly for himself. So this is the backdrop for the childhood of Joan of Arc. Or, of course, in French, I mean, I've, I've had to address this sooner or later, right? Jean d'Arc? Jean d'Arc? Do you say the last C? I don't know. I don't know why. Why? Do, I mean, I was going to say, why do French, why do, in, in the French language, why do they have all these letters at the end of words that aren't pronounced? And then I realized that my last name, you don't even say like half of the letters in it. So... As an as a idiot Anglophone, I, I guess I, I don't know. I can't really talk. Anyway, Jeanne d'Arc, she is, uh, she's, the, she's a peasant girl. She's the daughter of a farmer. Uh, Joan was born in Domremy, uh, a village where her dad, Jacques d'Arc, and her mum, Isabel Ramey, they had a, a small farm. Now, Domremy, it's surrounded by uh, Burgundians. Uh, and as a result, uh, Joan witnessed several raids on her French Alliance village as a youngster. Her, her village was was loyal to uh, Lord of Charles, and the story goes that in 1425, at the age of 13, Joan began to have visions. She began to receive visions, which she claimed were messages from God. Now, she had been raised as a devout Catholic. She claimed 
uh, to have seen various saints and angels who told her that uh, she had to make her way to the French royal court and to the Dauphin Charles, you know, the, the son, the, the son of uh, Charles VI, the Mad, um, and, and and aid him in reclaiming his crown. Now she was apparently right, according to these visions, she was the divinely appointed saviour of France, and she was going to be the one to aid Charles in taking the throne and winning the war against the English. So these visions continued apparently for, for you know a, a fair few years, and so by the age of sixteen. Joan decides to act on them. She finally actually, she, she goes, well, I, be, yeah, I, I, be, I better do what I'm told. It is God who's saying this after all. And, you know, obviously you should, uh, yeah, he's not a bloke you want to get on the wrong side of. So at the age of 16, uh, she travels to a nearby town, Vaucouleur. I think I did okay with that one. Vaucouleur, I think. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, and asked the garrison commander there, whose name was Robert de Baudricourt. I don't know. What is it going to be? Robert de Baudricourt or something like that. Anyway, old Robbo, right? She asks him for an escort to Chinon, where Charles the Dauphin uh, is holding his court. Now, she was laughed out of town, right? She's laughed out of town. Baudricourt, he's just, he's not interested in it. He goes, get out of here, you bloody dirty unwashed peasant, peasant girl. Go and pick your turnips or do whatever you're doing, bloody hell. Um, because I'm not absolutely, absolutely not interested in what you're having to say here. But she didn't give up. She returned shortly thereafter, and she, instead of going straight for the, the garrison commander, she actually brought some of the soldiers on side. A bloke named Jean de Metz, another man, uh, Bertrand de Poulangy, oh, really getting into it here, um, who believed, actually believed what she was saying about her divine visions, and they believed that she was, uh, she was a messenger of God here. So the story goes... That once these soldiers, uh, you know, once she'd brought them on side, once she'd uh, convinced these these blokes and maybe a couple of other people as well that, uh, you know, she was in fact uh, who she said she was, uh, they helped her get another audience with Baudricourt and they convinced Baudricourt to help her. Um, and now what what she did, right, apparently by bringing him, by, by sort of convincing him to do this, right, the way that she did this was by predicting the outcome of a battle before the messengers had even arrived to report the actual outcome. So she went there and she's like, oh, this is what's going to happen. It's going to go like this. And then a couple of days later, the messenger was like, oh, you'll never guess what happened. And Bordrick was like, oh, is it this? Like, oh, how'd you know? I was like, oh, apparently this dirty, unwashed peasant girl is the messenger of God. Beautiful. So quite a trick. Quite a trick by Joan of Arc there. And she's brought this bloke on side. She's got these soldiers uh, wrapped around a little finger. And uh, it, do, it, it, does, it does a job for her. It does a job for her because Robert de Baudricourt, he organizes a uh, an escort to take Joan to Chinon and meet the Dauphin. So she's underway here. However, the journey would be a dangerous one. Be a dangerous one. I mean, you know, there is a reason she needs a military escort. Not only, you know, are they heading through what is effectively a militarized war zone, she's also obviously a woman. And in order to play a bit safer, she cuts her hair, she cuts her hair short, and she wears men's clothing, or not to be, you know, not to des- not, not to be such a, such a, a target necessarily for brigands or, uh, or or bandits or any any other ne'er-do-wells who uh, who may see her as a, as something of a something of a target again now this wasn't a particularly enlightened time as you can imagine and obviously if we if we look at this through the lens of today there's a lot of stuff here that really jumps out at you and just and, and makes you scratch the older head there because even the cross-dressing at a, at a time like this was seen as something that wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't looked upon particularly favourably by the powers that be. However, there were exceptions for women uh, who were able to cross-dress in times you know, where, where it would uh, help them guarantee their safety. And so there, were, there was a precedent for this sort of thing. Um, but again, at a time like this, 
it was the only sensible thing for her to do, heading through this war zone, dressed up like a bloke, cut hair, and it helped to keep her safe, helped to keep Joan safe as she travelled to Chinon with this, uh, with this escort. Now, she arrived there, no worries, safe and sound, and she was granted an audience with Charles, actually. So she actually had it, she found it harder to meet with the old garrison commander than she did with the bloody, you know, Dauphin of France here. She met with Charles, who was 26 at this stage. She's just 17. And she once again claimed to have received these messages from God. And there are a range of different stories, actually, as to how she established her credentials with the Dauphin, right? Because, you know, she's just rocked up, this peasant girl, she can't read, she can't write. She says, hey, listen, you know, God's been bloody whispering in me, let me know, I want to to let you know what he's been saying to me. So how did she actually convince the king, or not the king at this stage, so the Dauphin, how did she manage to convince the, uh, the Dauphin that she was actually, you know, not stark raving mad? Well, there are a couple of interesting elements to go. There are a couple of stories I'll tell you in, in a sec, but I want to remind you, I want to remind you that Charles the Younger here, he was a first-hand witness of what madness looked like. His father was insane, and he'd seen, you know, someone afflicted with, with uh, these terrible mental, mental, mental illnesses firsthand. And so that actually made him quite a good judge of whether, you know, this, this young girl, this teenager coming uh, and presenting herself to him was you know, similarly mad, and and he didn't think that she was. And then, as I say, there are a couple of things that she said, may have said or did or done, um, to to bring him further on side. Now we don't know one hundred percent what what actually happened here. And as I say, there are a few stories. Uh, one story uh, goes that she actually uh, picked an incognito Charles out of a crowd of strangers. He wasn't dressed up in all his royal finery, but she still said, "You're, you know, you're the Dauphin. You're the bloke I've come here to see." So, you know, she had no way of knowing that it was him. Of course, we didn't have, you know, Snapchat or bloody uh, gossip rags or anything else like that back then. So you wouldn't have seen pictures. Not that kings and queens are using are kings and queens using Snapchat. I don't know. I'm in my thirties, mate. I don't even know what Snapchat's for these days. Anyway, um, so that was one of the. Apparently, maybe she picked him out of a crowd. Um, another story says that she recited back to him a prayer that he had made in private. So, you know, God's playing a game of telephone with, uh, with, with Joan there saying, oh yeah, this is what the bloke said to me. So just let him know that. But another story, another story, another yet more intriguing story simply says that they had a private, a private audience together. No one else heard what the, what she said to him. And that was enough to convince him. What was what was said behind closed doors was enough to bring Charles on side. Now, again, we don't know. We probably will never know. Uh, as historian Marina Warner put it, she said, we will never know what happened at Chinon. It is one of the abiding mysteries of history. So it's very, very intriguing indeed. But what we do know, what we do know is that somehow, some way, Joan of Arc persuaded Charles to pin his hopes on her. Once again, let's remind ourselves an illiterate farmer girl from the sticks, a teenager with no military experience, all of a sudden was, you know, the uh, well and truly in the good graces of this bloke who was trying to crown himself as the King of France. Now, I have to say, Charles did do his due diligence. He did his due diligence on, uh, on Joan before, you know, fulfilling her requests. Given that she was claiming to be a messenger of God, he had priests and clerics and theologians and all sorts cross-examine and question her. Now, his worry was that she was, you know, a witch or a sorceress or, you know, uh, so, you know perhaps sent by the devil, something like that. And because if, if she were and if, you know, if this emerged or if even there was a suspicion of this, 
the legitimacy of his claim to the French crown would be sullied by associating with her. Obviously, at this point, you know, he is contesting his claim against the the, the claim of Henry the uh, Henry the Sixth, who's just a youngster. So he can't have anything go wrong here. He really can't have any black marks against his name. And he doesn't want to, uh, you know, start <laughs> promoting this uh, this peasant girl if it, if it turns out that, you know, she's been you know, possessed by the devil or whatever. However, you know, Joan came back with a glowing report. She was, in the words of the clergyman, a good Christian, possessed of the virtues of humility, honesty, and simplicity. So, unbelievably, Charles backed her. Remember, this isn't a fairy tale. This actually happened. This is not a made-up story. This is actual factual history. Some farmer girl turns up at court one day, sees she's having visions from, from, you know, from God, and all of a sudden, she's got the bloke fighting to become king of France, bent over backwards to do what she says. I did some reading about this, and historian Stephen W. Ritchie explains this bizarre series of events excellently. This, is, this, is, you know, this sort of contextualizes it for us a bit, makes us understand why this actually was reality and not just the far-flung fairy tale that it sounds like. This is what, this is what uh, Ritchie has to say about it. <clears throat> After years of one humiliating defeat after another, both the military and civil leadership of France were demoralised and discredited. When the Dauphin Charles granted Joan's urgent request to be equipped for war and placed at the head of his army, his decision must have been based in large part on the knowledge that every orthodox, every rational option had been tried and had failed. Only a regime in the final straits of desperation would pay any heed to an illiterate farm girl who claimed that the voice of God was instructing her to take charge of the country's army and lead it to victory. In other words, right, this was Charles in, a, in what is very much a classic, it's so crazy it might just work situation. Joan claimed that she could lift the siege of Orléans. The English had been laying siege to the city for quite some time, and she was confident that the time had come to drive them back. So she goes to the Dauphin, she, she, she requests, you know, arms and armour, a horse and a banner, and she receives all of these things, and then goes off on this expedition to Orléans to lift the siege. Now, she wasn't put in charge of the forces that were sent off to Orléans. Many people seem to think this. She wasn't, like, immediately promoted to general. Um, you know, she was a very and an, an, an increasingly popular symbol of, of the Kingdom of France, and she gave renewed hope to the embattled war effort here. But she wasn't just immediately made, you know, a, a, a commander overnight. She went along with this force that uh, that was already heading off there, and and, and of course she became a. It's difficult to understate to, to to overstate. Sorry, difficult to overstate the impact that she had on on this fighting force. But I just want to make she wasn't necessarily its commander. So it's important for us actually to discuss why Joan sort of changed the game here and what about her emergence as as a as a figure um w- was so pivotal in in determining what what took place in in what followed during the hundred years war here I mentioned before that she changed the terms the nature of the war and and this is what's so significant about her because previous to Joan of Arc's entry to the hundred years war it would be fair to characterize the entire conflict as a glorified and overblown succession dispute. Various noble houses, largely distant from the day-to-day lives of, of you know, common French people, were fighting for control of a kingdom 
And, you know, the, the, the common folk may have been more concerned about, you know, burnt villages and destroy, destroyed crops than the legitimacy of this king or that heir. It was all very distant. Joan, however, she shifted the nature of the war away from being a succession dispute from conflicting royal and noble houses to a full-blown nationalistic and religious conflict. And this resulted not only in more people being interested in fighting it, but also raised the morale and the vigour of the weary souls who had already been fighting for so long. Because rather now than just fighting for, you know, this king or this noble house or whatever, they were now, they were now fighting for France. They were now fighting for someone who claimed to be a divinely ordained messenger of God. And this too was why Charles was so very careful to ensure that Joan was an orthodox, unimpeachable Christian, as her involvement in the war escalated this situation so enormously, as it was now almost a de facto holy war, as Joan emerged as a religious, uh, um, emerges as a religious visionary, right? Someone who's saying God is on our side. She had to be untouchable. And, you know, in fairness, it wasn't just religious. It wasn't just about, you know, my God is better than your God or my, my flavor of God is better than your flavor of God, whatever. Joan, as I say, also made the war a nationalistic one. She reinvigorated French determination not to be ruled over by a foreign power and particularly not the English. So this was a very powerful motivator and helped raise morale, helped raise the determination amongst embattled French troops who now, again, rallied behind this cause, throwing off the uh, the idea that they could be ruled by an English king. So with, uh, with the wind in their sails, right, the French, of course, with Joan of Arc at their side, they arrived at the besieged city of Orléans along this, this large big contingent that Charles had sent off arrived there along with Joan on the 29th of April, 1429. Now, initially, interestingly, Joan was actually, actually excluded from the war councils and the other meetings of, of nobles who were in charge of the war effort, those people who were going to attempt to break the siege. But this didn't stick. I can tell you that. This didn't stick. And she quickly found her place in these councils and these meetings. And again, while never given direct command of soldiers, most of those who were in command nonetheless listened very carefully to her advice and followed it very dutifully. Again, they believed that she was the messenger sent by God. They didn't want to get on her, on her, on her wrong side. She was a, uh, a very inspirational figure and she brought a lot of people into the fold and, that, and a lot of people believed her without question. And what was very interesting was the way that she completely changed the tactics of the way that this siege was being fought. Prior to Joan's arrival, the defenders of Orléans had played it very conservatively. They hadn't made too many attacks on the besieging army who had had you know, enough time to build outposts and garrisons and fortresses. They were hoping to wait it out. The French were hoping to wait it out for reinforcements. And, you know, there were even those who, with the arrival of Joan and, and these contingents that came with her, they still wanted to hold back further and wait for their forces to become further bolstered by even more in reinforcements. But Joan, she said no. She encouraged a more assertive approach. She said, now is the time to attack. It wasn't long, therefore, before the troops in Orléans, they were sallying forth. The reinforcements that had brought in had been brought in, they were attacking English outposts, fortresses. They were, they were basically taking the fight to the English rather than having to wait it out in order to break the siege. And she herself, Joan herself, famously rode into battle alongside all of these troops, armoured and mounted, carrying this great big flying banner that became her trademark. She took it into all of the battles that, uh, that, she, fought, uh, that she fought in and it became a rallying point, a great symbol of inspiration for all of the French troops on the battlefield there. This long flowing banner that had been raised by 
Sally Joan in her armour astride a mighty war horse. It really would have been a sight to behold. Now, remarkably, with Joan uh, not necessarily at the helm, but again, as I say, as this rallying figure, this, uh, this, this great big inspirational figure for the French troops, the French, they begin to drive the English away. They capture the fortresses. In some case, they force the English to retreat without even fighting. And there is one final battle with the English at Orléans where Joan again took, leapt into the fray on her war horse, the banner flying high above her head, and she was actually herself injured. So involved she was in the fighting. She took an arrow between the neck and shoulder, but the battle was won all the same, right? We, even with this injury that Joan suffered and the English, they lifted the siege and they retreated the very next day. She'd done it. She'd lived up to the reputation she'd built to herself. She'd driven the English away from Orléans. Unbelievable. Get around her. What a legend. Although there is not a lot of consensus as to actually how much fighting she did. I mean, I've said that, you know, she was there in the thick of things and she certainly seemed to be. She was there on the front lines. But she later claimed never to have actually killed anyone in any of these battles. She she claimed to have uh, preferred her banner to her sword and uh, which, which I guess kind of makes sense because, again, she was just a peasant girl. She wasn't, wouldn't have been trained in the ways of war, but uh, she claimed never to have taken any lives on the battlefield. But she was there in the thick of things, as I say, getting injured and, uh, and really on the front lines, rallying the troops that were there. And it was quite an incredible turn of events. It was quite, you think about what she achieved, it, was, it is just incredible. She broke the siege of Orléans, and this was the first major French victory that they'd had since you know, since the, the colossal defeat they suffered at Agincourt almost 15 years ago, right, when, with, the, with the beginning of the Lancastrian phase of the war, the French had just been suffering defeat after defeat after defeat. And so this was a real reversal of fortunes uh, from the French. And of course, had Joan of Arc at its centre as a figurehead, a rallying point, a symbol of hope, a gift from God, the French were very quick to claim that their success here meant that Joan was indeed a sign of divine favour. Now, you know, on the other hand, the English were just as quick to claim that Joan was clearly possessed by the devil and that theirs was the divinely favoured campaign. There is just no winning sometimes. But uh, with Orléans safe and secure, right, Joan, she's not resting on her laurels. She suggests now that the French push the advantage. There wasn't a scrap of scepticism or doubt after she made this pronouncement with the French commander this time around. And Joan, she set off once again with a contingent of soldiers. They harried the English forces and they recaptured bridges up and down the Loire. Now, in the series of battle that followed, right, the English capitulated at every turn. The Loire campaign was a stunning victory for the French as they drove the English out of the area around, around Orléans. Um, and it culminated with the Battle of Patay on the 18th of June in 1429, which ended up being the decisive victory for the French in the Loire campaign. It, it basically was a reversed Agincourt uh, that meant that the English fled the Loire altogether. Joan was there, present to watch, banner unfurled, flapping above her head as the French outmaneuvered the English longbows, attacking them from the flanks rather than, you know, just walking into the meat grinder as they'd done uh, in, at Agincourt. So they really, really did flip the script on the English longbows there. And um, 
As a result, the English army basically was all but destroyed. Uh, many of their commanders were captured or killed, and the uh, the, the small number of English uh, English troops and, and officers that made it back were uh, were actually quite heavily scapegoated for the entire defeat. Uh, with with Orléans and the Loire campaign that the French had wrought here, so the English army, with it you know being broken and and, and routed, retreating with its tail between its legs back towards uh, you know safer lands, the French now had a free hand to recover and to consolidate their newly strengthened position, and this was huge. This was huge. It meant that finally, finally, the tide was beginning to turn. And the French fortunes of this war were beginning to look a little better. So it looks like the punt that Charles had taken on Joan was really starting to pay off. However, she wasn't yet finished. She still wasn't finished. She wasn't going to let up the pressure here. In the wake of these victories, she said, the time had come to press Charles's claim to the throne, undo his disinheritance and proclaim him as the rightful king of France. And that meant, that, and, and as a result of this, right, as a result of this, she went to Charles, therefore, and she said he needed to make the journey to Reims and be coronated there, as was tradition. Now, Charles disagreed. He said he was happy to be crowned in Orléans, as Reims was, you know, very, it was deep into enemy-controlled territory. It would be a very dangerous journey to make, especially after, you know, this, this, uh, this stunning victory. Maybe now was the time again to consolidate and, and not take any risks. But no, no. Joan said, the symbolic, the power of the symbolism of being crowned in the traditional, you know, in, in the proper traditional place in Reims would solidify, would, would really strengthen Charles's claim on the French throne. And it was a very, very important uh, objective to achieve in order to, to legitimize him as the rightful king of France. Now, I'll let you guess who won this argument. I'll let you guess who won the argument between Charles the Dauphin and Joan of Arc. Before the end of June, the French, they're on the march. They're on the march to Rome's once again. Uh, what Joan said goes, and once again, off they marched at her behest into what really was the heart of enemy territory. It was on paper a very difficult, a very dangerous uh, undertaking that they were getting underway with there. However, however, right, so great were the victories that Joan and the French had won in Orléans and with the Loire campaign, right? That marching into the lands controlled by the English allied Burgundians ended up being an absolute walk in the park. The march to Rheims hardly met any resistance whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. Almost every town and village that the French marched through immediately surrendered and pledged their allegiance to Charles. Instead, they could tell which way the wind was blowing. I mean, perhaps this actually indicated where their loyalties lay all along, potentially. But whatever the case, right, whatever the case, Charles and, of course, Joan, they are kicking goals with both feet. They're, they're recapturing, retaking all this land, most of it bloodlessly as well, as, as these towns just came over to the came into the fold with, the, uh, with this soon-to-be French king. In fact, it was only... Troyes, Troy, how do we, I, I forgot? Actually, forgotten how we decided to pronounce it. Troy, 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 yeah. uh, Troy, Troy, uh, look, the the town where they signed the treaty that disinherited Charles. That one. Um, only this town, right? Only this town really offered any kind of resistance and tried to hold out. And this is because there was a a small percentage of um of Burgundian loyal uh, people there. But uh, even that, even that fell after a bloodless siege that lasted only four days. So, the master rhymes. It demonstrated that Charles and Joan really were just on a, on an absolute tear. It, the, the common folk clearly weren't 
hugely enamoured by their English and Burgundian overlords. They came over to Charles very quickly. And so this march, which had been expected to be long and difficult and treacherous, it was the simplest thing in the world. And it led to an enormously important symbolic victory for Charles and for France, just as, just as Joan had said. Because after arriving in Rome on the 16th of July in 1429, Charles was crowned as King of France the very next day in, in the traditional place that the, king, the, that the kings of, of, of France had always been crowned. And so Joan of Arc, she was there. She paid tribute to the new king, Charles VII, as, he is known, uh, as he's known, now known. And this further strengthened his position with the support you know, of such a, of such a legendary figure. But it legitimized his claim to the throne as he was the one who was having the, the crown of France put on his head in the place that all of the kings of France had had it done. So it really was an enormously important symbolic victory here for the French. However, unfortunately for, uh, for Joan, right, even after this big win, the big win in Orléans, the big win in the, in the Loire campaign, and now delivering the king to, uh, to, to reign safely to, to have the crown plonked on his head. Unfortunately for Joan, <clears throat> this is the point that we have to trundle out a classic half-assed history catchphrase. And I'm sorry to say that it's not some surprise naval history this time around. No, it only got worse from here for poor Joan. It's a bit of a bummer seeing that she's really just crushed it so far, lifted the siege of Orléans, uh, ensured the, the crown was put on the head of the king. You know, again, she's out here kicking goals with both feet, but no good. Didn't last, unfortunately, and her fortunes took a turn for the worse from here on out. Because after his coronation, Charles VII didn't really listen to Joan anymore. He didn't listen to Joan and the others who were still on side with her. Who said, you know, they were all suggesting that he keep up the momentum, keep up the pressure, and march now on Paris. But instead, he negotiated a truce with the Burgundians, who promptly undermined the truce and used it instead as a way to reinforce their defences in Paris because they anticipated attack. And sure enough, by the time the truce, uh, truce expired and by the time the French were ready to attack uh, Paris, it was far too late for them to capture the city with ease and their attack failed. And what's worse, right, as, as Joan and, and, and all these other soldiers marched on Paris and tried to, and, and tried to make it fall, uh, what's worse, fighting took place on the 8th of August, a Christian holy day, which strongly undermined Joan's image as a divinely appointed leader. As you know, why would she be leading troops on the birthday of the, of the Virgin Mary if, if again, she is this uh, this divinely uh, you know this divinely mandated uh, visionary here like that? So uh, it really wasn't a good turn of events uh, for Joan. She clearly didn't have as much influence over the king as she'd thought, and the king made a series of blunders that led to uh, the siege of Paris in 1429 being ultimately unsuccessful. And on top of that. She was also wounded during the fight. She, uh, she took a crossbow bolt to the leg, although uh, she did manage to escape with her life. Now, Joan's further campaigning after this failed siege of Paris, it was equally unsuccessful. She's a bit, bit of a one-trick pony there, Joan, really. Um, and, and while she was ennobled by Charles on the 29th of December, 1429, the king actually began to distance himself from her. Obviously, she you know, served her purpose and now she wasn't, you know, not, I'm not saying she was completely cast aside or anything, but she definitely wasn't sort of front and centre as she had been before. So uh, wasn't going so well for her there. And she was left without very much to do at the beginning of 1430 when the French and the English began a truce that lasted several months. And then when the truce ended, it was actually to be the end of her, I'm sorry to say. As soon as the fighting restarted, of course, Joan was 
keen to get stuck into the thicker things and get the unfurl the big banner and once again lead uh, or, or at least help to inspire troops to uh, to victory here. And so she headed off as soon as the truce ended to defend the town of mm, Compiègne. Compiègne. I yeah, it's I don't know. I don't know. That's got more silent letters than my last name. Compiègne. Um, and uh, which was uh, under attack, was being besieged by the English and by the Burgundians. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that it was there that on the 30th of May, 1430, Joan and a number of other uh, soldiers and troops there fell victim to an ambush. And as she fought with the rear guard as her troops attempted to escape, she was captured. She was, she was taken from her horse. She was fell off her horse or was dragged from her horse and she was captured, captured by the Burgundians. And after being captured... She was imprisoned and uh, and then more or less sold to the English. Uh, the English paid uh, 10,000 livres to the Burgundians uh, to transfer this high-value prisoner over to them. And of course, as any red-blooded Frenchwoman would, she made several escape attempts throughout all of this. And on multiple occasions, the French even actually sent forces out to try to rescue her. But nothing came of it. Nothing came of her uh, her escape attempts. Nothing came of any of the rescue efforts. And uh, Joan ended up in English custody in Rouen, the uh, the main English headquarters in France, and it was there that she was finally put on trial, beginning in 1431. Now, as you might imagine, this trial was an absolute kangaroo court. It was a total and complete sham. It was politically motivated, and it was more or less a fait accompli. Uh, Joan was expected to be charged with heresy, meaning that was it was uh, an ecclesiastical trial. But it broke a ton of its own rules, this trial. It broke a ton of the rules that are expected of ecclesiastical trials at the time. The bishop who was in charge of, uh, of the trial, he had no jur- jurisdiction. Uh, Joan wasn't offered a legal advisor. The panel that oversaw, oversaw the trial was filled with uh, pro-English clergy. And those who opposed the trial, uh, even pro-English voices, were silenced with threats of violence. So Joan, in the lead up to the trial, she was questioned extensively. Uh, and, and the very rigorous documentation of this whole process means that we know a lot about not only what took place at the time during the, the questioning, but also it's why we know so much about her life and, and what she did, and because it was all written down and, and a lot of that writing has survived. So we know a lot about, uh, about Joan of Arc. It's, it's said that there aren't many other figures in medieval history who have been, whose lives have been so closely examined and, and so accurately recorded. So we do, you know, I, I guess the 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 silver lining to this this cloud of the of, of this sham trial was that we do have a very we have extensive and, and detailed records of Joan and her life here, but the questioning itself, of course, wasn't even remotely fair. There was a you know there was there was a huge political agenda that the English were attempting to follow through here. They wanted to discredit Joan, and they also wanted to discredit people that she was associated with. Not only were they trying to get rid of her as a threat, they were also attempting to discredit, of course most importantly, Charles VII, and try to uh, undo he, any legitimacy that he had, he had gained from his association with Joan by painting her to be a heretic, you know, someone who had, who had, uh, who had thrown in her lot with the, with the dark forces of, of ensorcelation and what have you. And so as a result of this, right, uh, this was, a lot of the, the proceedings were made, were made public. And this backfired very badly. This backfired very badly on the English because they wanted, basically, they wanted to have this out in the public and the public eye, so everyone could come and see. Oh, look at this! You know, she's a she's a she's a charlatan. She's a heretic. She's a you know she's a whatever. She's a warlock. She's a witch. Um, but instead, 
as I say, it backfired very badly having this out in the open because Joan proved to be quite equal to the task of defending herself, even with the odds stacked against her so unfairly. Remember, she's a poorly educated farmer girl, which makes it all the more remarkable that she was able to navigate the pitfalls and the traps set for her by those putting her on trial and was able to uh, continue to uh, represent this image of uh, of purity and, and humility and, and, and all the rest of it there, the stuff that she'd built her reputation on. For example, right, there is there's a famous exchange from from this whole proceedings here from from the questioning. You may have you may have heard this story before, when she was asked if she knew that she was in God's graces, which is a weird question for sure. It's a weird question. There's a reason that was asked, as we'll come to. But she was asked, "Are you in God's graces?" And Joan's answer, very famously, was, "If I am not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God so keep me." Now, this might not sound like much, but the question is actually a trap because if you say no to this question, if they ask you, oh, are you in God's graces, you say no. Obviously, you've just outed yourself as a heretic, so that's no good. You can't say that. But if you say yes, you're violating another piece of church doctrine that says that no one can ever be sure, that no one can ever be certain that they are absolutely in God's graces. So basically, the prosecution have tried the old Lucy what? here on her they've tried the old oh, geez smells like updog in here doesn't it and it didn't work for it didn't they shouldn't fall for it didn't work on her she's not going to get bamboozled you know it joan ended up you know turning it back on this she absolutely got them so good on you joan didn't didn't fall for that one there but as a result of joan's quite remarkable self-defense uh the investigation was instead moved behind closed doors and uh, and joan was interrogated in her in her prison cell instead and uh this prison cell by the way i might i might add was in a regular, you know, English prison with soldiers and guards and the like, whereas under the rules for an ecclesiastical trial, she should have been kept in, uh, you know, an ecclesiastical prison uh, guarded by nuns. Now, she sought assistance wherever she could, especially rankling at, at, at the injustice of, the, of this whole trial, or you know, so-called trial, the, the questioning, whatever else. Uh, but unfortunately for her, the taint of heresy meant that no one wanted to intervene on her behalf. Charles VII didn't want to risk his crown by being associated with a perceived heretic, you know, despite the fact that she'd more or less won him the crown. Um, and her attempts to contact the Pope and have him intervene also failed. Just no one wanted anything to do with her because, uh, again, the taint of heresy was one that was very difficult to wash off once, uh, once, it, uh, you, know, once you were blighted with it. And... Uh, Nevertheless, you know, in spite of Joan's best efforts to uh, receive any kind of help or, or assistance whatsoever, the questioning continued. And as you might expect, the transcripts of, of her interrogation were later found to have been twisted or doctored. And, uh, I mean, she just never really had a bloody chance from this outset, did she? She never, she never had a chance. She faced 70 charges, everything from heresy to cross-dressing. And on the 24th of May in 1431, she was threatened with immediate execution should she not straight away sign a document of abjuration, essentially renounce everything that she'd said about being a messenger of God and whatever else, and also agree to stop wearing men's clothing. Now, in prison, she had stayed in soldiers' clothing, and uh, with a very good reason. She was wearing uh, pants, uh, boots, and a tunic, which were all very firmly secured to her with tightly bound cord. And, uh, you know, without getting into too much detail here, I don't want to get too graphic. This discouraged the threat of, uh, of unwanted attention from those who were guarding her. She feared for her safety while imprisoned. 
But under the threat of being burnt at the stake then and there, Joan signed a document renouncing her claims of divine visions uh, and, and promising to, uh, you know, to, to stick to uh, orthodoxy and, and women's clothing from then on. And a document that she signed that, by the way, don't forget, she couldn't even read in the first place. So after signing this, she once again dressed in women's clothing. She, were, she was returned to the prison. But there, just four days later, she was once again found dressed in men's clothing. Now, why? There are two reasons here that have been put forward, and either both or one of them is true. It's, it's never been conclusively determined here. She had requested, as I said, to be moved to an ecclesiastical prison and, be, and to be guarded by nuns, and this request had been denied. And she had said to her captors that she would happily remain in women's clothing were, she, were her safety guaranteed, were she taken to one of these ecclesiastical prisons, she would happily stay uh, you know, wearing women's clothing as she would have felt safe there. But after, being returning, after having been returned to the regular prison, she was forced to change back into men's clothing, again, to protect herself from any potential abuse. And another story that was put forward later by uh, by witnesses, by one of the bailiffs actually in, in the years to come, uh, claimed that the English actually denied her the women's clothing that they insisted that she wear. They had instructed her to wear this clothing and then in the prison took it off her. And so the only clothing that she had left to wear was men's clothing. So either way here, whatever the reason, Joan was once again found in men's clothing, and this was a very convenient legal trap that she had fallen into because she was declared at that point to have relapsed into heresy after having abjured. And doing so, having being a, a relapsed heretic, this carried a death sentence. A relapsed heretic could be executed, and, you know, despite the exceptions that ecclesiastical law had for women that allowed cross-dressing to protect themselves in situations like this. This was the defense that she attempted to mount while uh, uh, explaining why she dressed as, uh, you know, in soldiers' clothing on the battlefield or while traveling, uh, because it was, it was protecting her. It was, it, was, uh, it was safeguarding her there. So despite these legitimate exceptions existing in ecclesiastical uh, law, this was all very conveniently ignored by the English, the people who put her on trial, the people who were determined to undo her no matter the cost here. And so as a result, Joan of Arc was deemed a heretic and she was sentenced to burn at the stake. And so it was that she was taken to a square in central Rouen, she was bound to a stake and she was burnt to death. And after she died, the English, they burnt and then raked and then re-burnt her ashes to prevent any relic seekers from claiming part of her remains. And then they dumped the ashes in the River Seine. And that was the end of Joan of Arc, who was just 19 years of age when she died. After having fought to break sieges, after routing the invading English army, after reclaiming a kingdom for her king, she was burnt alive at the age of just 19. But this, of course, was not the end of her legacy, because the French, they went on to win the Hundred Years' War. They, you know, buoyed on, no doubt, by the momentum that she offered the French war effort in, in Orléans and in, in Reims. The alliance between, the, between England and Burgundy, it frayed and then fell apart, and Charles VII, he campaigned successfully into Normandy and Gascony and drove the English out. England, which was plagued with domestic issues in the late stages of the Hundred Years' War, 
was finally defeated once and for all in the, in the decisive Battle of Castellon in 1453, which ended the Hundred Years' War in France's favour once and for all. And also in the 1450s, a posthumous retrial of Joan of Arc took place, and in 1456 it found that Joan was innocent and in fact a martyr. Instead, it was those who convicted her that were tainted with heresy. And she went on to eventually become canonised by the Catholic Church, although that took, you know, another 500 years. It wasn't until 1920 that she was finally made a saint. And of course, since her death, she has grown to become a powerful and enduring symbol of France. So the next time that someone tries to talk smack about France's perceived cowardice and, and spinelessness, just you remind them of the decisive victory that the French enjoyed during the Hundred Years' War and you know, the Battle of Tours and Hastings and Verdun and, and Yorktown. Don't forget Yorktown, you damn American. How do you like that? You wouldn't have won bloody Yorktown if it weren't for the French. And remind them how a single French teenager led a nation back from the brink of defeat and after crowning a king, unflinchingly accepted her death in the flames. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Joan of Arc, and I do hope you enjoyed it. Certainly learned a thing or two about a figure that, you know, I think we've all certainly heard of. It's, it's always good to go a little bit deeper on, on some of these historical figures and, uh, and find out the actual, uh, you know, whys and wherefores. I mean, anyone who's played Age of Empires 2 recently will, I'm sure, remember all of this. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that that was the main source of information I use for making this podcast. That, 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 we don't get it. That, that, that doesn't matter. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. All the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. I'm going to do this very, very quickly indeed. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, you can go there, subscribe to the show. You've got There's a contact form if you want to get, get in touch and, and suggest an episode. Always love to hear from people. Any feedback or anything else, please send it my way. Uh, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that'd be helpful. Um, I'm now getting to the point where I think I'm, it is safe to say I'm running out of T-shirts. So if you want a T-shirt, I don't expect to reorder them very soon. I have to be honest with you. I don't expect to reorder them very soon. If you want a T-shirt, you better get on that. I'm running out of sizes as well. So you better get uh, you better get on it very quickly if you want one. Um, still plenty of notebooks in stock though if you want to buy a notebook. Um, uh, and you can find the shop at uh, halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com. Uh, and if you just want to give me money and you don't want a T-shirt, hey, I've got a solution for that as well. Patreon.com slash halfhousehistory. You can the sh- support the show there. Thank you to all the, uh, all the special thank you to all the Patreons, uh, Patreon members who are continuing to uh, give me money for just doing this dumb podcast. I don't really understand it, but hey, thank you all the same. It's, uh, it, I, I can't really begin to uh, express how much I appreciate the, uh, the support. Anyway, that is that for another episode of Half House History. I'll see you next week for more. I do hope to hear from you in the meantime. Uh, leaving you as ever with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Abu Ben Adham wants to know, how come historical maps of France show the country in exactly the same orientation before and after the so-called revolution? Revolution.